Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is a generally pretty broadly accepted tenet today, I think, that says when you graduate from high school, if at all possible, if there's any way you can do it, go to university. You should be going to university, even if you can only barely get in, even if you're not really academically inclined, go to university. you got to get a degree. Everybody has to go. You have to have the experience. If you can get two degrees, better. If you can get three, better still. You're golden if you can get three, but everybody should be going to university. That seems to be the thought process now anyway. But what we're also hearing is a drumbeat of complaints from people after they graduate from university, and you've heard this, that they can't get jobs, especially people who, quite frankly, have essentially useless university degrees. I don't know what job you're expecting to get with a bachelor in philosophy, quite honestly, or a bachelor in history, maybe going to teaching, but there are people who come out and they can't get jobs after university. Certainly not good jobs, certainly not to pay off their school debt. And yet, Business Development Canada report, there's a Business Development Canada report that just came out saying there is a huge shortage of skilled trades workers to take many available jobs that exist in this country. There are jobs available. You just have to be a skilled trades person. Earlier this year, the federal labor minister called the shortage of skilled trades workers in this country, quote, deep and profound. So if we have good paying jobs in one sector, Why do we seem to be wanting to push everybody into a different path? It's an interesting question. There may be a simple answer, but I don't know if there is. Uh, Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan campus. He joins us now. Ken, thanks for doing this today. Delighted to be with you. I don't think there's anybody that's going to take a position that going to university, if you are capable of doing that, is a good thing for certainly for many people. But when you hear about all these jobs, apparently that exist that are being left open because we don't have people to fill them. It part of this discussion doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Why would we not be direct? We, why would we not be directing a lot more people to them? Well, it's a really, really good question. You know, we have a misalignment between some parts of the job of the workforce and other parts of the uh, uh, education system, the post-secondary education system. Canada has one of the largest, probably almost the largest uh, post-secondary system in the world on a per capita basis. We have excellent universities. We have excellent polytechs and excellent colleges. So we have everything you can want sort of available and really almost always really close to to home. And yet we have a bias in our society toward the university side. Now, I love universities. And by the way, I have a history degree. So (laughs) I'm a bit nervous about what you said there about my usefulness to society. Sometimes. Um, yeah, exactly. But, but, but you know, the, the reality of it is is that we have too many people going in the wrong directions. And, and the real question is, how do you match people to the opportunities that are actually out there? Real jobs for real people, good jobs. And I think if you want a simple answer, there's no simple answer to anything that's complicated. But one of the biggest problems is we've actually devalued the idea of trades and technical education quite substantially. Um, our, our political leaders always talk about universities and then mention colleges and polytechs on the side. In fact, getting getting uh, senior politicians to talk about polytechs 
as a significant part of the post-secondary system really hard to do. And yet they have a wonderful track record of getting people into the, into the workforce. And you would so, never hear it, a politician it, talk about an apprenticeship. At least I don't ever hear it. I mean, forget that. Not, you Sorry, go ahead. Often, you know, Minister Haidu has talked about it and, and is pushing people in sort of in that direction. But we don't have the right systems in place. Um, our, our apprenticeship system is, a, is a kind of slow-moving. Um, we, there, there's really a lot of work being done to make it make it better. Um, companies sometimes send the wrong messages, but just to give you a bit of a hint about what's going on, there's actually a list, a growing list of major corporations, Apple, Google, Facebook, Ernst & Young, um, and many other companies, who actually are now making it clear that they do not require a university degree uh, to get a job in their corporations. And, and so we, we're moving into a completely different work environment where people have to figure out where they want to live, what kind of job they want to do, and the training they need to get it, and they need to be prepared to change that every five or ten years because the economy is changing so quickly. And so we're really into a fast-moving, fast-changing kind of world where people need to be far more um, deliberate about how they actually look for a post-secondary education. Yeah, and, and look, as I said off the top, there are a lot of people who are cut out for university who should be going to university because that's going to take them down the path they want to go, but it almost would seem to be offensive today if a teacher, if a high school teacher were to say to Johnny, hey, you know what, Johnny, I, I wouldn't go to university if I were you. That would almost be seen as an insult. Well, and you think that one through, and who would be insulted? The answer generally is the parents, uh, because parents have got locked into this idea. We've actually been working on it for 30 years, of convincing people that university is the, the ticket to the middle class, the ticket to prosperity, the ticket to opportunities, and the ticket to a job where you don't have to work with your hands, don't have to work outdoors. You know, you can work in a nice, safe sort of government office or a corporate office or whatever. And parents are sometimes fixated to to the exclusion of all other opportunities, even to the exclusion of what their young your, your children want to do and are really good at doing. So we've got this built into our culture. It's huge in the United States. People obsess about going off to college, you know, off to university and applying for the best schools and things of that sort. And we're getting, getting pretty close to that in Canada, too. Universities are wonderful for the right people and a disaster for the wrong people. You end up with a really high dropout rate where gonna... people spend one or two years and end up not, not grading a degree. Or I was the dean of arts at the University of Waterloo, one of the fabulous Ontario universities, one of many. Um, and we had a very substantial number of our graduates who, within 18 months, were back at a college or a polytech getting a technical training so they could go into the workforce. So they got a good education, but then they had to go back to get something else to get them into the into the economy in a major way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Ken Coates, the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan, about this idea about trades and universities. There are reports that there are thousands of skilled trade jobs that are lying out there waiting for people, needing them to be filled, but they can't find the workers to do it. And meanwhile, everybody is being flooded through the universities. Now, this is not a dump on university time. Obviously, Ken is, works at a university. This is, the university is fantastic for a lot of people. But it does seem that we have made it so that everybody should want to go there. And Ken, one of the real interesting things, and you alluded to it right before the break, we, in our society now, to be labeled an elitist is, is just the highest form of insult. And yet, is that not exactly what we are being when we sort of poo-poo or dismiss the idea of someone going into the trades as being a lesser option? I, I think so. I think very much so. 
we've gotten away from the idea that there's sort of a whole range of jobs that a successful society needs in order just to, to uh, be prosperous, to provide opportunities for its young people and for society as a whole. And I think we've really done a bad job of sort of making sure that, that we respect the, uh, the options that are, that are out there. Uh, there are phenomenal opportunities, and not always in the big cities. We also have an urban bias in the way we sort of plan for people's economic future. There are wonderful jobs in the smaller towns and some of the rural areas, often in the trades and technical fields. Um, the, these opportunities are not always expressed well to the students in high school. They don't really get a sort of a sense of what's, of what's out there. Um, I was talking to one young lady the other day in Saskatchewan, and, and uh, they had a career day at their, at their school and planning for the future. And one of the teachers said to them, well, you know, from our high school, kids don't go to college. They only go to university. Um, and Saskatchewan has a wonderful polytech, SAS Poly, um, as Ontario actually has some of the best polytechs in the world. And, and why aren't we talking about these things? Sheridan, Sheridan College is a phenomenal institution. You know, same with Humber, same with all these places there. They're really, really great, Conestoga College, Mohawk, et cetera. And, and what we need to do is make sure that students are aware of the whole range of things. We need to make sure that parents sort of back off from sort of imprinting on their children the, the, a singular set of options uh, for them. We don't want them to look at going to college or going to a polytech as a second choice. Mm-hmm. It could very much be a first choice. Um, and, and again, universities are wonderful, but they if you look in the United States, for example, half the people who start university don't finish. Well, that tells you there's a mismatch of the highest order. It's not that high in Canada because we do have a better college and polytech system than they have in the States. Um, but, but nonetheless, we have a lot of people who are, you know, they're following their parents' wishes rather than what their own ambition and their own skill set. And it's that match between the job, job market and a person's skill set that's really, really important. Um, folks have this idea that we're going to go to university, we're going to walk out the door, they're going to give us $60,000 a year to start, and we're off to the races. The world does not work that way. It actually never worked that way in the past either. But people think that it did, but it won't in the future, and it certainly doesn't now. Ken, how much of this, though, honestly, and I I mean, I don't know how careful you have to be because I know you work at a university, but how much of this stems from the fact that universities have become these massive businesses that still require more and more tuitions to keep everything going? They're no longer always just a, a center for higher learning. They are a corporation. Well, universities are big operations. They're um, billion-dollar operations in many in many cases. Um, they're giving students what the students and their parents want. They're advertising and competing for them like crazy. The intense competition for students is really something to behold. Um, and the universities are fighting with each other. Uh, you're not so badly off if you're sort of in the Golden Triangle down in <laughs> down in southern Ontario. You've got still growing populations, but you look at places like. You know, Nipissing and Laurentian and Thunder Bay and Windsor and even St. Catharines. These are these are fine institutions that are actually really good at adding value to the young people who come to come to stay there. But you can't get people out of the out of the Greater Toronto area to go to these northern areas in any large numbers and these any smaller areas in in, our, in large numbers. So we need to be far more careful in sort of limiting our the, the choices of young people, and we need, frankly, to get the leaders, the business leaders. Um, the, the political leaders to talk about these other educational choices equally. Barack Obama, who was a huge promoter of public education, spoke incessantly about getting more people into college and not about getting more people into trades. And the United States is paying a price for that now. Just before I let you go, the irony of this is, wouldn't 
So all these people who are coming out of university now and cannot find a job, if we did a better job at moving a bunch of people who are more cut out for trades into trades, would that not open up a whole bunch more jobs for the people who actually come through university and then finish on the other end and are looking for a spot? Well, you know, keep in mind one, one thing. If people who go to university do get jobs. They don't, just, they don't get the jobs they want. They don't get the income they want, and they don't necessarily get the security that they want. But, in fact, one of the realities of it is is that, you know, a lot of smart people go to university, and people who want to hire somebody want to hire smart people. Um, we need to get those people being more careful about what they want to do and what they can do. And they, might, they might be really smart, but the smart might be a technical ability rather than something else. Mm. So I think we have to work really, really hard to make sure the students are aware of what that job market looks like and, and, and not, to, not to misunderstand. When we ask people in Canada, so what jobs they, what companies they want to work for, generally it comes out to three of them. Uh, the federal government, which is interesting, because that's stable, high-paid, you know, reliable kind of stuff. And the other two are Apple and Google. And Apple and Google do not have very big operations in Canada. So people have this idea that a job of the 21st century is playing ping pong and having free passes. <laughs> and that's just not the way the workforce is working out. And you watch these companies, many of whom are in desperate shape, particularly in smaller towns, trying to get a technical or tradesperson or a hospital or an old folks home, trying desperately to get somebody with technical training to come and live there and work there and not able to, and having to look overseas to find really a, a, a good job for a good Canadian uh, raised student who has a wonderful opportunity to have a great career and a great life here in Canada. So we need to be more, more, more cautious about this. We need to be more proactive. We need to be more realistic about what the job market actually looks like. Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. Really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're expecting news on Monday, Tuesday, sometime early next week, maybe Wednesday, coming from Calgary about what a potential bid, what a 2026 Winter Olympics hosted by Calgary would cost. Not the bid, what actually hosting it would cost. Um, They have talked about this. They've talked about bringing the Winter Olympics there again, because remember it was there in 1988, and they're very serious about this. The numbers are being crunched right now. Well, this is relevant to you and me, of course, for a variety of reasons. One of them is from a purely excitement and emotional level. We love it when the Olympics are in Canada. We do. We, we find great joy, most people, in that. It has been that way in Montreal. It was that way in Calgary. It was that way in Vancouver. We didn't always do well, but we always found joy in it. The second and more pressing for the discussion today is if an Olympics are to come to Canada again, whether it's Calgary or anywhere else, it's going to cost us money. That is how it works. It's going to cost us money. It'll cost people in Calgary more than we'll have to pay. It'll cost people in Alberta more than we'll have to pay. But we're in the country of Canada. It's going to cost us money. Are we up for this? Michael Haina is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. If you're going to have a discussion about the Olympics, there is only one man to call, and that is him. And he joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Nice to be back. Do you think Canadians are up for this? Do you think we're ready for this? Uh, I would say you were exactly right. The Olympics creates uh, joy and excitement across the country, has been the case in 76, in 88, and certainly in 2010. Uh, whether the folks in Calgary are all that keen, the most recent polls 
have a slight majority at this point in favor of the idea of going after the Olympics again. So the important date is next week, or one of the important dates, as you said, and then Calgarians probably can get a better idea of what might be in for them financially and with regard to facilities and so forth. Well, you know, Alberta, it's, it's interesting this comes up now because uh, with everything that's happened over the last week with the Trans Mountain Pipeway and everything, you wouldn't necessarily think an oil pipeline would tie into an Olympic purchase, but uh, Alberta's not exactly flush with dough right now. They are, this, these are tough times in Alberta, and I'm just wondering if, if this province is even in a good position to make a push for this at this moment. Uh, from the IOC's point of view, definitely. The IOC is very keen on getting cities to bid for the games. They have run into problems on this uh, file over the last couple of years, cities considering bids dropping out. The same has happened for Calgary 2026. At least five cities have bought out, and the IOC is running out of candidate cities. So the IOC would be very interested in the Calgary bid and would look at it very favorably. As you say, the economy in Alberta is facing fairly difficult times. That brings up the question of cost, of course. And when it comes to cost, the track record for hosting the Olympics, especially when it comes to the public purse, isn't all that great. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, just a little, here. just a little. Well, they're, they're, the numbers out today, the Calgary Herald has a story out today that they have received a tip from somewhere that the amount that's going to be thrown out there next week is $5.8 billion with $500 million of that being hoisted by Calgary itself. Um, $5.8 billion for an Olympics these days, Michael, that sounds like an absolute bargain if you can do it for $5.8 billion. I think Sochi was 51, wasn't it? Well, Sochi was 51, uh, and that was, the Calgary Bid Committee will explain certainly that uh, Sochi was an outlier, so you cannot use those numbers as a model. If you average out other Olympics, Winter Olympics, which have been hosted over the last, what, 12, 14, 18 years, you probably come up with an average cost of $3.8 billion adjusted for today's dollars. So it's within range. If it's 5.8, you, you never know until the counting is done at the end of the game. If it is 5.8, it might be within range. But these kind of figures have a tendency to increase as the event draws nearer. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I was looking up today because we got Tokyo coming up in... Um in the next one, and they originally put a budget forward of $6.6 billion, which is a little higher than what Calgary is proposing. Mm -hmm. But as of today, according to what I was reading, the number is now at $12.6 billion, so it's double almost what they originally said. And they're not done yet. And they're not done yet. No, even that has been drawing some criticism from economists to investigate Olympic Games and they think it's still low-balling the actual cost. But this happens, you mentioned it, this happens every single time. I can't think of an Olympics that had a budget that they came in on that number. Every one of them, the budget goes way, way, way up. So why would we then believe when Calgary comes forward with a $5.8 billion number, why in the world would we believe that's not going to be 15 by the time it's done? Well, it, you can't... 
you can you can take or leave 5.8 billion. I would be very surprised if it were that. It won't be 15. Let's not forget that the Winter Olympics are a somewhat smaller affair than the Summer Games. They top the Winter Olympics at what 2,900 athletes. The summer 10,000 plus. So Summer Olympics are always more expensive. If you can draw on existing facilities, and that's one of the big selling points Calgary is trying to make, is that could potentially help you to reduce your your anticipated budget. But it could be 5.8. The last number I had before 5.8 was 4.6. So right there, there's a 25% difference. <laughs> and so it goes. So they certainly have already said they need two new ice uh, arenas, one for so the oval, the, the saddle dome that they have goes to figure skating and short track, and then they need two arenas for ice hockey and so forth. So those are fairly substantive, substantial um, investments, of course. If you can have a legacy of two Olympic ice hockey, or let's say ice facilities in general, that's a very nice pickup at the end of the games. But how that figures into your budget is anybody's guess, really. Yeah, and and to be fair, when you said the what did you say four point four billion was the number you had? Yeah, four point six was the four point six. And, and you know what? That may have been four point six U.S., which would be about five point eight Canadian. So maybe that's the same number. I'm not really sure right now. But this is no, um, the num- no the numbers are now circulated in Canadian dollars. No, okay, so uh, so that's an upgrade already. <laughs> uh, well, see the but uh, let me get back to this for a second though, Michael, because this does happen every time and. If the if the people who are behind the Olympic bids, they they're not dumb people. They have to know by looking at past track records that every time a budget comes out, that we end up blowing past it by probably a hundred percent more often than not. Is the idea here then we're going to try and lowball so people will buy into this and then we can deal with it later? Is is that I mean, is it almost a dishonest thing, or are they truly shocked when these budgets go through the roof? No, I don't think they are shocked really. I mean, I don't want to nurture any conspiracy theories here or cloak and dagger kind of stuff. In all fairness, they run the numbers the best they can at this point in time for an event that will not occur for, what, six, seven, eight years down the road, you know. So how can you run a budget uh, with the basis of an eight-year timeline? That in itself is pretty difficult. Then again, of course, you always have interested groups within the hosting city or within the hosting organization who stand to gain from the fact that the games arrive in town in the first place. The public purse never makes money. That's a fact. There are always private interests who don't do so badly. It it depends on where you try and figure out the interests might lie. But the public purse in this regard has never served very well. So the best we can hope for there is the legacies and the knock-on effects of the Olympics, if there are any. You mentioned something a moment ago that uh, I really think, though, is one of the interesting parts about this, and that is the the concept of Calgary as almost a recycled Olympics, because they've, they've thrown out the idea that they will reuse, not the, not the arenas, as you point out, but the ski jumping and the, the other things. They'll reuse many of the facilities. They have to refresh them, maybe do some renovations, but they'll reuse many of the facilities they had from 1988. Would this be a test run? Do you think the IOC would look at this as a test run and say, let's see 
if we can do this as opposed to going to the, all these places and have to build from scratch? Exactly that. And from the RC's perspective, it's even more important than that because the RC just, what, uh, two months ago, three months ago, came out with a new policy document which describes especially this kind of thing, namely that facilities are to be developed with a view to reuse or the upgrading of existing facilities for use at the Olympics. And Calgary would fit into that model very well because that part, of course, is true that if you can reuse an existing facility, even if you have to upgrade it, and they will have to do this with the ski jump and the Nordic Center, well, with everything, really, uh, you still tend to gain somewhat economically. So that 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 is a fair point. Well, and we've hand, we've seen, doing, sorry, Michael, we've seen these, if the, and I'm sure you have too, we've seen these websites with pictures and videos from um, Sarajevo, from uh, Rio, for sure, from Athens, of Olympic facilities that a couple of years after they're used are just, they're overrun, they're destroyed, they're completely wasted. And so I'm thinking if you can, if you're the IOC, and that's got to be embarrassing for the IOC, I, I think, if you can create a situation that says, look, you build this and we're going to come back to use them again in 10 or 15 or 20 years, that to me seems like something people could maybe get on board with. Well, I think so, but for the IOC, an even better selling point would be to say, look, for the Olympics, we get you to build these facilities and then you can use that for your own sport development after the event. I don't think the IOC would be very well advised to suggest that if you build the facilities, will come back in 20 years, let's say, because that is something we haven't really mentioned yet. Yes, it's true, the Olympics give joint and enthusiasm, especially if the home team wins, you know, let's not forget yes. that. Yes. Um, but what does it do for sports participation after the Games? That is always one of the arguments, if we have a successful Olympics that will motivate the average person on the street maybe to be more interested in sport and physical activity. And what better way to bring that about by constructing new facilities for use after the Games. And that is usually what the IOC tends to emphasize when it comes to potential knock-on effects. And I think games. we've clearly as seen you, that. As you were saying, many of these facilities are boarded, boarded up. Even in Beijing, Greece, you mentioned... Yugoslavia, Sarajevo, uh, Rio, it's, it's a huge problem. And that part of the story, the <laughs> doesn't like to engage particularly, you know. No, but we've seen that. We've seen in Canada that Calgary led to, in a lot of ways, Vancouver, that the, the facilities that existed in Calgary allowed people to participate, and as a result, we did better in Vancouver. Uh, presumably, the facilities in Vancouver would allow us to do better back in Calgary uh, once again. But uh, those same comments that this will allow for greater sports participation and a, and a legacy of sports, all those places we talked about that are boarded up, th- that, those are the lines they use there. Those, those stadiums course. in Rio, look at all the soccer people can play, and now it's just a giant pit. It, it is a giant pit, and even the famous Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing is kind of weedy and hardly ever used. So, like some of the facilities, you have to build to meet the IOC's requirements, and they're extremely strict. There's no give in those particularly. Whether those facilities 
are really useful for broad participation after the games is a very open question. And in many cases, that simply hasn't turned out. So you really have to be very aware in investigating these legacy claims that the IOC likes to make. Just before we let you go, um, is there real evidence, and, and this is this is something that would fall into your lap because with what you do um, at, at, with your work um, at the Center for Olympic Studies, is there evidence beyond the platitudes and beyond the promises of politicians and organizers and everyone else, is there actual evidence that holding Olympic Games really do offer any kind of tourist or financial or other kinds of boosts to the host city that they're, that they're in? Typically only for a certain time window before the Games and obviously during the Games, but hardly ever after the Games. I mean, Calgary can be as successful, and I don't want to be negative there. I used to live in Calgary myself, so there. Uh, but these effects evaporate typically after the games, with one very noticeable exception, that's Barcelona. Barcelona, in a way, managed to wrangle very significant urban renewal out of the 92 Olympics, and that is a very well-known positive example. Many of the other examples are indifferent at the very best, and, and some have had no because we hear yeah, this, we have to be careful with those kinds of arguments. Well, we hear it all the time, though. This is the this is the thing that they they tell us that if you have an Olympics, it's going to be a huge payoff for everybody. Well, no, the numbers don't bear that out. It is uh, it's an interesting one. We'll be watching. It's next week. It's going to be the um, it's a first step, and there is a, there is a bit of a time crunch here, isn't there? Because they do have a plebiscite, a vote that's going to be done among Calgarians to see if they want to go ahead with this, and that's only a number. It's in mid October. It's not very long from now. Yeah, mid mid November, I think. Mid November, okay. Of course, the specialty is the Calgary plebiscite is non-binding, unlike some of the other ones. So, but it remains to be seen what city council finds out next week, and then we'll get a clearer picture of all of this, I think. It is, uh, it is always good to, uh, to talk to you, Michael. I appreciate your insight on this one. Michael Haina from the uh, International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. Thanks for this. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A study came out this week. It was an Ipsos study done for Global News that caught my attention because I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people who are listening whether they are parents, whether they are grandparents, whether they're uncles, whether they're teachers, coaches, whatever. Because it's talking about the amount of money parents are spending on their kids' extracurricular activities now. And before I tell you the number, and I'll tell you in just a second, I must say, I think somehow, believe it or not, this number that they've come up with is actually low. Because when you look at some of the numbers that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, I think probably for many people, this is way higher. This is, this, this is an average, which of course means that some people don't have their kids in any extracurricular, so it's going to bring it down. But they talked to a thousand people. Ipsos talked to a thousand parents across the country. 55% of the parents say they felt financially stretched because of the extracurriculars that they are now paying for their kids. 32%, so one in three families in Canada is accruing debt to pay for their kids' extracurriculars. This is a stunning thing because it was not all that long ago 
that you could sign your kid up for baseball or send them off to hockey or whatever else. And it was, you know, it was a few bucks. But it wasn't breaking the back of the family budget. So what's the number? Well, according to this poll, over the last school year, so not even the entire 12-month, we're not even talking about summertime, okay? Because summertime, if your kids are at camp or if they're playing a summer sport, that's on top of this. Just during the school year, the average family in Canada spent $1,160 on extracurricular activities for kids. Now, what the study doesn't say, or at least what I have not been able to find out, not been able to find in this, is whether that is a total for whatever number of kids you have in the house or if that's per child. Nonetheless, you're paying over, according the average family is right now paying over $1,100, almost $1,200 for your kids to participate in extracurricular activities. Now, by the way, as I'm talking about this, I would love to hear from you if you think these numbers as we start going through them are realistic, if you think they're too high, too low, if you're maybe in this group who is suffering to try and get you, because you don't want your kids not to participate. You don't want to leave your kids out. You don't want to tell your kid that he or she is the one who's not allowed to play a particular sport that they may love because things are tough. That's the hardest part about this. You don't want to be, you don't want your kid to suffer because the costs are expensive, but my goodness, the costs are expensive. Let me go through some of these because some of these numbers may seem very normal, very acceptable, very predictable to you. They weren't to me. Uh, The one that is predictable and again, this is all according to this Ipsos poll, is the, any guess what the most expensive extracurricular activity slash sports slash whatever, any guess what the most expensive one in Canada is? Come on, you know it. Hockey. Hockey is number one on the list. How is it that our national sport, that is our national passion that we produce more players, how is it that we have turned hockey into the most expensive elite sport that is out there. And when I say elite, the average amount that people have spent across this country, the average amount they've spent in hockey this year, 700 or will be spending $744. Now think about that for a second. That's a lot of people who are just playing house league hockey. So they are going to be down less than that. They may be four or 500, but you've got an awful lot of people who have put their kids in rep hockey that the number they are paying, this is why I said, one of the reasons I said, I think these numbers are low, who are paying a lot more than $744 for their kids to play hockey this year. Especially when you factor in, I mean, a new pair of skates. If you buy your kids new skates, there's a couple hundred bucks and a decent stick is almost a hundred bucks now. And you're talking other equipment, a helmet's going to be with a mask, with a cage is going to be well over a hundred bucks. Here's the interesting part. 2017, of the thousand people, the thousand parents across the country who were interviewed and polled on this issue, 15% said their kids were going to be playing hockey. Again, I come back to this. This is our national sport the sport that we are famous for around the world, and only 15% of parents were going to have their kids in hockey. And I'm not believing that that's because of a disinterest in the game. I believe wholeheartedly that is entirely because of the cost of the game. But in 2017, 15% of parents were going to put their kids in hockey. In 2018, 10%. 
10% of Canadians will have their kids in hockey. And these are not Canadians. These are Canadian parents with kids of that age that they could be playing. Only one in 10 Canadian kids. How have we got to the point in this country when only one in 10 play our national sport and have anything to do with it? That is a stunning, stunning number to me. Number two on the list. What do you think it would be number two as far as extracurricular activities? Expensive. And by the way, number two is nowhere close to number one in cost. Big drop off. Number two, dance lessons. $527 is the average that parents are going to be paying if you have your kid in dance lessons this year. Probably not a lot of surprise to some people that that would be number two. Dance. And again, the dance lessons, it doesn't say, does that include costumes and driving to competitions and staying in hotels? Keep in mind, those things are all extras. All the gas and the wear and tear on the car and the repairs and the hotels and the food and the uh, $527. percent of the parents say their kids will be in this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the cost of extracurricular activities that parents in Canada in 2018 are paying for their kids. If you want your kid to learn how to play that on their guitar, they're going to land at number three on the list of most expensive extracurriculars that people are putting their kids into. That would be music lessons. Not everything is sports. Music lessons. Right up there, $500 that the average the average Canadian parent of kids of extracurricular program age the average Canadian parent is going to pay $500 for music lessons. That is up 120 bucks over last year. Now, really interesting in this, the number of sports that are dropping, the number of activities going up. I don't know if this is a millennial thing that young parents are not as enthused about their kids playing sports, but activities, music lessons, dance lessons, art lessons, scouts, swimming, although that's a sport for sure, but uh, those things are going up. Language classes, while the sports, many of them are dropping. But next on the list, I'm not going to go through them all. Uh, In order, language classes from expensive down, language classes, gymnastics, martial arts, volleyball, skiing, art lessons, art lessons, $380. The average Canadian family is paying for art lessons this year for their kids. These numbers are, are, are huge when you start to figure out that that's just so, let's say your kid is going to do a couple activities over the course of the school year, and you've got a second kid who's also going to be doing some different things. You're now talking, well, the number said $1,160, but I'm thinking that, that for a lot of people, it's way, way higher than that. Uh, where were we at? Art lessons, basketball, drama classes, lacrosse, football. Football is down to 5% of the population. People are saying they're going to pay an average of $300 to football. Uh, The bottom five, the cheapest five things, activities that parents are going to put their kids in for extracurricular, baseball or softball, $271. How is is baseball costing $271? I mean, you don't have a hockey rink. Like rinks, I understand you've got to rent the rink. They have to keep the ice in there, blah, blah, blah. The diamonds are there. You get a permit from the city for the diamond. So I don't think you even pay for the permit. You just reserve it and the city grants the permits. You got to, the teams give out bats. The teams give out balls. You you need, probably need a glove. Some kids are going to want to have baseball cleats, spikes, but that's really it, isn't it? How, 
who are the leagues that are charging 270 bucks? You could be charging 100 for that. I guess you got to pay umpires and stuff. Anyway, uh, scouts, boy scouts, girl scouts, girl guides. That number is going up. $226, though, people are going to be putting into that. Skating, just skating lessons, 213 Soccer, here's an interesting one. Soccer is the second cheapest of the ones they chose here. The second cheapest extracurricular for the average, the average parent is going to spend $212 on soccer for their kid this year. Interestingly though, according to this poll, the number of people who are going to be putting their kids in soccer dropping from 25% to 21%. Is that significant? Well, it's coming up on 20%. I would think that's significant. And then cheapest swimming. $204. So here's the thing. According to this poll of the extracurricular activities that you might be, if you're a parent, that you might be putting your kid into, the cheapest, the least expensive extracurricular activity that is out there for you to put your kid in is swimming that, according to this, on average, is going to be $205 for you. That's not cheap. That's not inexpensive. It's relatively speaking, it's less than hockey. It's $500 and some less than hockey, but that's not inexpensive. What about, I know there are free programs around and stuff, but where are the, where are the programs that are out there for the people who their kids just want to go and have fun and it doesn't have to be all that organized and it doesn't have to be all that expensive. And, and we just go to the park. I I don't get it. I don't get it. And here's, you know, this, this story that was written about this poll raises a a really important and interesting point, and that is the idea of parental guilt. guilt. We started this by talking about how so many parents, especially those who are under 35 years old, are going into debt to pay for their kids' extracurriculars. Why would you go into debt to pay for your kids' extracurriculars? If you can't afford it, they don't do it. At least that's how it was once upon a time. Now, I'm not arguing that that is the best way. You've heard from many, many people, your grandparents now, maybe you, who had to miss out on stuff because their parents just couldn't afford to send them. Well, I don't, I don't think that that's where we want to go back to. But there is certainly a difference in our, in our psyche now because once upon a time, if mom and dad couldn't afford to send you somewhere, you didn't go. Now we have this deep, and we've all felt it, we have this deep parental guilt that my kid can't be the only one who doesn't get to do this, and so I'll spend money I don't have for these expensive extracurricular activities to make sure they get to do it. It's a lovely gesture by the parent. I get why they're doing it. We've all felt that guilt. But boy, where are the extracurriculars that have been created so that parents don't have to feel that way? Some of these numbers, I'm telling you, some of these numbers completely shocked me. And again, it, it doesn't specify in here whether we're talking about per family or per kid with a lot of these costs for hockey. But the thing is, for, for hockey as an example, because if it's more than one kid in the family playing hockey, I guarantee you the average is going to be more than $750. I'm guessing this has got to be by kid. And now you have two or three kids. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, you are in 
deep financial doo-doo unless you've got a really nice job and you've got some free time on your hands to get them there. Because all the other things on top of it, time off work, hotels for tour for tournaments, traveling, the wear and tear in your car. When did it become so complicated? When did it become so expensive? I don't really understand when this happened. It happened under our noses, but certainly it is. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.